Hello and welcome to the MVR podcast, Series 2, Episode 18. I'm Rachel Elmer. And I'm Peter Jacob. And today we're talking about, is it her or is it the autism? Question mark. So Peter, this was our preamble of deciding what topic we were going to bring up today and and how we came to this hmm. this topic. Well, I think we've both uh, come across questions relating to diagnoses, but also what under what circumstances parents are entitled to resist many, many times. And you and I both just briefly spoke about the way it came up in recent supervision sessions as well. Mm. And I'm thinking of the many um, queries we get from various professionals who sort of say, well, can you do, quote unquote, NVR with autism? Can you do NVR with ADHD? Can you do NVR with OCD? Can you do NVR with this, that, or the other? Mm. And I guess... What strikes me is the confusion that professionals and parents often experience. And of course, they're, they're, um, the, 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 the dilemmas they experience when they feel that because of a certain condition, perhaps, you know, neurodiversity of their child or something of that Mm -hmm. nature, they might be harming their child. They act in the ways that we support them to act in NVR. And I, I recall going on some training run by the National Autistic Society and was really curious about the guidance they were giving parents around managing patterns of escalation. And the whole of the two-day training was really focusing on Mm de-escalation. That was the key concept, the key um, technique, um, and and, um, that that allowed parents to really practice with a young person who's escalating, who has a condition of ASD. And it was not very different from MVR. Um, in fact, I think MVR, for my opinion, of course it would be, that MVR was far more helpful than um, just de-escalating mm. uh, because of the, the, the multiple ways in which we enable parents to increase their parental agency. But, yeah, so the theme, the common theme is, is de-escalation. So that is what uh, in MVR we have in common with many different approaches, Mm. And but you also mentioned that uh, approaches that focus almost entirely um, on de-escalation mm-hmm. fall short of helping parents to develop greater agency. And I'm wondering what's at the back of your mind saying that. Yeah, I think that. I've worked with enough parents over the years that there tends to be a theme in parents' understanding and belief that MVR won't work with their young person or their child or their adult child, um, particularly when there is a diagnosis of ASD or FASD. 
fetal alcohol um, syndrome disorder. And that common theme in parents and caregivers that, you know, nothing will support, no, no intervention will support their child or adult child um, at any cost. And when we begin to explore the techniques and and concepts of MVR, the response from the parent and caregivers would be, well, we can't do that. He has FASD. It won't work. He he won't understand the language. He won't understand the the concepts. He won't get it. And my response is, but you'll get it. Mm. You'll get it. Well, and it's really interesting because it does portray... Um, a focus on changing the child's behavior rather than a focus on the parents making adjustments to their own behavior or to their own responses so that there can be a change in the relationship. Mm. So I think that we go from a much more relational perspective in NVR. Mm. And I know... I mean, coming back to the title of today's podcast, uh, uh, you know, this sort of this question that parents sometimes ask, you know, is 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 what my daughter is doing? Is it is it her or is it is it um, is it the autism? You know, mm. Mm. of course, that is a question that cannot be answered mm. because the girl is not entirely defined by being autistic, yet she is autistic. You cannot separate. And I was sort of thinking of conversations with colleagues about, you know, their clients uh, feeling reluctant to protect themselves, Mm. for example, from abuse by their teenage child, say. Mm. who is on the autism spectrum mm. thinking well maybe um maybe i can't do anything because that's the autism that is making her somehow react in this way but then the same uh the same clients worry well what if this child you know what if my son um he's now 14 what if he's 16 and has a girlfriend and he treats her in the same abusive way? Mm-hmm. The girlfriend will not necessarily think, oh, well, he's got autism. I've got to cope with it. Or she may think he's got autism and I've got to cope with it. And then what will ensue is a more and more a damaging situation in which uh, he becomes more and more controlling. So it's a very difficult, it's a real dilemma for parents. But what strikes me is the at, at such a point of confusion, the, the inhibition that parents feel from protecting themselves, maybe even protecting the siblings of this young person, from be it verbal abuse, physical abuse, what, whatever, you know, um, as if they were somehow being unfair. Mm-hmm. 
And mm. as if holding the child accountable was somehow unfair. And I remember speaking with some parents saying, you're not holding the child accountable for their past deeds. You're holding them responsible mm. for what they do from now going forward. And each time you protect yourselves, you hold them responsible. Which brings me back to a session I had yesterday with a, with a family in, um, whose young person has a, a diagnosis of ADHD. And we were communicating, we were talking about ways to communicate um, for him to take charge of his own actions, mm -hmm. for him to take charge of his own self-control, for him to take charge of his own responsibilities. And the father stopped and said, I really like that way that we've just described it, mm -hmm. rather than us taking charge of him. Yeah. Um, and and that, that lovely balance that they are now moving into the position of him becoming older and them taking a step back, but still showing vigilant care, still reconciling and connecting with him, mm. still being his parents, but actually taking that next stage of, of his development that he's beginning to do things on his own. And of course, if, if as a parent, I put that responsibility across to my child, to my adolescent child or younger child or even adult child, there is a leap of faith, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Because I need to believe that their capacity to regulate themselves, their capacity to manage the situation in spite of a disability mm -hmm. is potentially greater than I've seen it to be. Yeah. So in a sense, I need to trust in their potential. And I think that runs counter to uh, a disabled narrative in which I think they just can't. They're incapable. Mm. Yet, if you think that disabled narrative to its end in all its consequences it gets really scary mm -hmm. they're not capable and if it's always up to the parent to regulate the child then what does that say for the child's own future <laughs> i remember oh sorry pete i thought you'd finish no no tell me what you remember <laughs> I remember um, uh, uh, training many, many years ago and, and a professional participant came up to me. So I've really loved this training, foundation training. And then she described she's a, a mother of an uh, um, adopted daughter. And she said, this is landing so well for me. And this is the message I've been giving my daughter. You know, yes, she has um, early year trauma and attachment issues. And my message to her is, but you know what? When you grow up to become an adult, you will not be finding a job that only employ adopted children. Mm -hmm. You will need to go into society equipped with, 
with the skills. So the school provides support in children's learning, which is vital and crucial for children to thrive and learn and be educated. Then the parents also provide that ability that the child believes in themselves that they can then progress into adulthood with an opportunity to get employment or training or some kind of experience. And I really liked that parent's attitude about giving a message to her daughter that she can do this, that she can pull through, that actually you're not going to get an employment agency that only employ adopted young people. And I I found that reassuring. So in a way, um, that that parent went beyond an either-or way of thinking. Mm. Either she cannot or she can. They Mm. may have made reasonable adjustments and accommodated Mm. her to some degree and in certain ways because of what she may have experienced, because of high... uh, you know, levels of early childhood adversity or whatever. Yet there is also an understanding that uh, the child needs to be able to manage life in that world out there, outside Mm -hmm. of the family. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about where I resist problematic behavior of the child, I also communicate to the child a belief that they are able. Mm. Maybe in ways that we haven't seen much before. But it's um, it's not just a leap of faith on the part of the parent, but I think it is an expression of a belief of the child's ability to change. And it it strikes me as particularly important in the light of, for example, growth mindset theory, Mm -hmm. whole area of research that has shown that people, people's traits can change more or growth in regard to a specific trait is greater when the person believes that they can change and when others around the person believe that they can change and communicate it both explicitly and implicitly to the person. Communicate it in what they do and how they act and what their body language says and what expectations they express. And in a sense, I think that goes beyond the the either or, beyond the she can do it, she can't do it. Mm. And it goes into, let's see what else she can do. And do you know, I, uh, I, I remember, because you mentioned the National Autistic Society, and I remember a conference I went to at the National Autistic Society many years ago. And the main keynote speaker was an autistic woman who um, who stopped speaking when she was about two and then started speaking again when she was about four or five. And then she said, and now my parents can no longer shut me up. <laughs> and um, she described her interaction with her mother 
and she described the way she would say to her mother, I can't do that. Mm. And her mother would say, yes, I know, you can't do that yet. 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 And now, let's do this. So, and she didn't say as much, but what transpired was that that expectation of this woman's mother is what spurned her on. Yes, coping, coping, and and enabling you to dig deep, you know, as a person, in spite of your diagnosis, as a, as an adult young person, you know, that that you have the strength and the ability to achieve, and you can do it. I think the fixed the fixed narrative for some families, and it's coming from a place of love and wanting to protect their child, but that, you know, I've heard it in some of clients I've worked with, you know, oh, we, we couldn't give a message of concern to, to our son because he just wouldn't understand that. Well, and I'm, I'm thinking of the example, you know, parents and siblings are so often active in the car, right? I'm thinking of the parents who want to drive their son to football because they feel that's the only thing he has. Mm. So there is a desperation on the part of the parents to enable him to go to football in spite of what he does, you know. And then so they're sitting in the car and he's abusive and they take it. And because they they want the best for their child yet i'm thinking if they do not tolerate that and protect themselves and protect the siblings from the let's say verbal abuse or the punch in the arm or whatever it may be by for example driving over to the side of the road and stopping the car for a while and then maybe going back into the car and continuing the journey, unless the abuse continues. If they don't do that, I think they uh, fail inadvertently to support their child to develop those self-management abilities that the child needs in order to survive in the world. Like you said, that parent who said to her daughter you won't get a job that's for adopted people only mm. and you know that to me is so central to think my protection of myself my protection of my other children my resistance against the abusive behavior are also forms of supporting this child mm by communicating my belief that he can do it, mm. he can do it, or they can do it, through a strong expectation, and then finding out what they can actually do, discovering what they can do when they are engaged by that expectation. And motivated by that expectation. Yeah. Yeah. That key that key part of the relationship between the caregiver and the child is that, you know, 
we have a role as parents to motivate our kids to to take risks, to take challenges, to pursue thoughts and ideas and dreams and ambitions. Yeah. Yeah. In spite of 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 conditions that they might have. And I guess um I, it brings me back to a uh, a conference that I was at and I was standing next to Haim Omer and someone asked Haim, can you do NVR with autism? And Haim said, you know, when a child has a disability, wouldn't you want to support them even more? So he framed NVR, the kinds of responses that we coach parents in showing mm. he's he framed those responses as a form of support of the disabled child something the disabled child needs yeah yeah i really like that i really like that that message and i think for me this this podcast has brought about some real clarity, which is interesting because that was our last podcast. Um, the NVR helps parents to protect themselves mm. and to protect their other family um, from from the harm in that relationship, and that's such a lovely way to to view the approach. Yeah, I think in the early in the early stages of a new parent learning. MVR, understanding MVR, positioning themselves within that framework, that actually it, it helps you to protect yourself. Mm. Yeah. It helps you to protect yourself. That's such a lovely message. Mm -hmm. And it does loads of other things too. Good. I think you've summarized it very, very well. You've yeah. Summarized it beautifully. That was a lovely brief podcast, Peter. Thank you. Lovely. Okay. It's goodbye for me. And for me. <laughs> <laughs>